Long before the National Park Service was established, the geological site commonly known as Mammoth Cave in the state of Kentucky was a popular tourist attraction. Open to the public for guided tours beginning in the 1830s, this massive labyrinth of underground caverns and tunnels was first explored by enslaved people whose legacy of stewardship spans now more than five generations. A black man named Stephen Bishop led much of the earliest explorations of the cave and named many of the most prominent features. An expert on the largest cave in the world that winds more than 406 miles beneath the Earth's surface, Bishop was said to have guided the most prominent scientists, political figures, and writers of the mid-19th century, including the poet Ralph Waldo Emerson. It was on a visit to Mammoth Cave, guided by Bishop in 1857, that Emerson wrote the essay, Illusions, inspired by a feature called The Star Chamber. But when Mammoth Cave was established as the 26th National Park on July 1st, 1941, local residents, black and white, were forced off the surrounding land to make room for the new federally managed recreation area. Under the provisions of Jim Crow era segregation, black Americans were ineligible to become national park rangers, despite their long history of service as cave guides. Born in Glasgow, Kentucky in 1947, Jerry Bransford recalls being told as a young black man to use the rear entrance of the Mammoth Cave Visitor Center. Though a direct descendant of Madison and Nicholas Bransford, who with Stephen Bishop led tours and explorations of the cave, he was denied the same privileges as a white visitor. As a child, Bransford only heard of his family's legacy from the stories told to him by his father. Removed from their roles as interpreters of this historic site, little evidence remained of all that his ancestors had done to preserve it. After a 30-year career in marketing as a photographer for the Dow Corning Corporation in Nashville, Bransford was recruited by the National Park Service to use his skills as a storyteller to share his family's remarkable legacy of preservation. Many Kentuckians have a connection to the land their families have lived and worked on for generations, but perhaps no family has as unique a connection as the Bransfords, who not only worked on top of the land, but under it. The land they worked is now Mammoth Cave National Park. This is their story of labor, their loss, and of how one member of the Bransford family is helping to restore the connection between his family and a world-renowned part of Kentucky. This is a Mammoth family story, and it's told by Jerry Bransford. Mammoth Cave is the longest cave system in the world. The last tally that I knew about was 406 miles of cave, and uh, the research and uh, the exploration of it, it, it continues today. Yeah, I never knew I was going to be here as a tour guide, but my father, David Bransford, made sure that we knew who we were, where we came from, and the contributions that old kin folks provided to make this such a, a successful cave system. Today, National Park Ranger Jerry Bransford shares with us his incredible story. I'm James Edward Mills, and you're listening to The Joy Chip Project.
Uh, my name is Jerry Bransford, and I'm fifth generational uh, guide here at Mammoth Cave National Park. You know, and that's saying a lot. I mean, especially as a Black American, you know, to have five generations of heritage in what is an amazing national park. In fact, one of the first, perhaps, tourist attractions in North America before it was a national park. Absolutely. Uh, first of all, tell me briefly about your family history. How did, is it that they came to be here? Well, we came here from Nashville, Tennessee in 1838, but even pre-Thomas Bransford of Nashville, Tennessee, and Franklin Gordon of Glasgow, Kentucky, a, a little community east of here, were business partners. I think they were well-to-do, and uh, after the War of 1812, the cave was kind of sitting dormant. Folks drifting in here from around the world and internationally wanting tours, so Franklin Gorin had the idea that if they knew, or if he knew what was in the cave, folks would pay money for tours. At that time, only six or seven miles had been known. So Franklin, Franklin Gorin of Glasgow, Kentucky, owns a young teenage slave named Stephen Bishop, the magnificent Stephen Bishop. A young mulatto, he was smart, cunning, quick, poetic, everything that a, a guide could be and explore. But he soon realized that the tourist business picked up quite quickly because he had invested $5,000. Now, $5,000 in 1838, uh, a lot of money. It's not peanuts and pickles now, but in 1838, that's unheard of money. So as the tourism business uh, continued to grow, he realizes that a single 17-year-old can't possibly explore the cave, guide, and chart it. So he has a business partner in Nashville, Tennessee, Thomas Bransford, who came, whose family came from the southeast of England near Kent at Canterbury to Nashville, Tennessee in the 1790s. So he goes down to Nashville, a community called Edgefield. As a matter of fact, that part of Nashville remains today, Edgefield. He says, Thomas, I bought this cave and I've, I've invested a lot of money in this cave. Now, you've got those two slave boys named Nick and Mike Bransford. He says, I would like to lease them from you. So they worked out a deal. So Nick and Nicholas and Madison Bransford were brought here from Nashville, Tennessee. Matt's owner is his daddy. He fathered Madison from a little slave girl named Little Hannah that his daddy owned. Even though they have the same last name, it's pretty common for a slave owner to give their slave their last name. But we really think that they weren't brothers. We think that Nicholas's father was a blacksmith that came to Virginia to Nashville with the Bransworths after migrating to the United States of America. But Thomas Bransworth made it very clear that he knew that Matt was his son. So he brought those boys up here. He leased them to Franklin Gorin, Gorin for $100 a year each. These boys were teenage, a teenage, they were young. They were willing learners. They were introduced to Joe Shackford and Archibald Miller. Joe Shackford and Archibald Miller are among the first in the K period. These boys learned tricks to the trade. They learned quickly, eventually escorting kings and queens to the cave. General George Custer, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who wrote The Illusions of Mammoth Cave in 1855, and other dignitaries from around the world. Now, I think they were smart enough to know that Typically, sometimes young teenagers want to kind of compete with each other. And Nick was the quieter of, of the three, but material in the library and memoirs makes it very clear that in no way, in no way was Nick inferior to Matt and Stephen Bishop. He's quieter. 
Some say that because he was a dark-skinned man, some people have to overcome those obstacles today, that maybe that he's darker or not as outspoken. Maybe he's harder to understand and get along with, but that was proven to be very, very untrue. So Franklin Gorin kept the cave for one year. And Dr. Cronel Louisville had made trips to Mammoth Cave. At this time, consumption was raging, what we call tuberculosis today. I understand that Dr. Cron of Louisville's brother had died of consumption. Oh, by the way, Dr. Cron was nephew to George Rogers Clark of the Lewis and Clark Expedition. So he paid Franklin Gorin $10,000 for the cave. Not a bad deal to, to keep the cave one year and make a $5,000 profit. But part of the deal was that Stephen Bishop is to be sold with the cave. So that was the deal, and so was it. So they continued to tour guide the cave, explore it. And so going up to Locust Grove, Stephen meets a fine young mulatto girl named Charlotte. Oh, she beautiful. He asked Dr. Cron, he said, Dr. Cron, I met this girl when I was up to your states off the Ohio River in Louisville. I, I think she likes me and I likes her. Is there a chance that we could get better acquainted? So Dr. Cron agreed. He brings Charlotte down here and they gets married. They jumps the broomstick and gets married. To this union, one boy was, was, uh, was born. His name was Thomas. We don't seem to, to know much about what happened to Thomas. And so Dr. Cron stipulated in his will that seven years after his death, he is to free all of his slaves, and that he did. Unfortunately, one year after Stephen is freed from slavery, he develops some sort of sickness. Some say he complained of a toothache. Others say that maybe he developed consumption of what we call tuberculosis today. So Stephen at age 37 passes away. Oh, people hadn't heard about Stephen dying. Some did. Correspondents came from overseas. So I haven't been here for five years, but I'm willing to pay a dollar more a day to have the magnificent Stephen to be my guide. But that gives you an idea of how renowned Stephen was. But they hadn't heard about Stephen passing away. So administration says, unfortunately, we tell you that Stephen has passed away. He fell to his sickness in the cave. Well, how did he fall? He was so sure-footed in the cave. What could possibly have made Stephen fall? He hadn't fallen to his death. He simply developed consumption. We think, maybe a toothache. We just don't know. So he's the only one of the three slave boys in the all-white cemetery that remains here at Mammoth Cave today. A businessman from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania promised Charlotte that he would make sure that Stephen had a decent headstone. You see, the original headstone was made of wood. And of course, we know that wood would, would deteriorate over time and go away. So he makes, he keeps his promise. He ships a Union headstone, Union soldier's headstone down the, Mississippi, down the Ohio River and up the Green River of Mammoth Cave. It can be seen in the park today. So that's why you see the cross swords and the Union gloves on it, that it's a Union soldier's headstone. And in more recent year, Joy Lyons, a chief of program services former, 
saw that the dates were corrected. He did keep his promise that he did ship a headstone down from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but it was a Union soldier's headstone. Well, Nick and Matt, old folks say in my family are very troubled with the loss of their comrade Stephen, but they know they must go on. Well, by 1841, Madison, my great-great-grandfather, had met a, a slave girl from Brownsville, a little community on the other side of the river. Her name was Parthena. Wasn't that a lovely name? His name was Madison. So she asked her owner, and he asked his owner, if they could get married. So it seemed like the owner of the slaves worked out a deal where they go up to the old church. See, they still had the church even during days of bondage. So they held hands and swore to be true until death to depart. And the old preacher laid a broomstick down. And they jumps the broomstick and they gets married. So by 1863, three children were born. In a memoir we found in a Tennessee State Library, Matt says, all oh, these children that I have with my wife, they're the happiest little children I ever did see. They look like little grasshoppers out in the yard. But little did he know, by 1863, three of the four were going to be sold from him. They were tied behind a rider and led away. My great-great-grandma said, Captain, why don't you take me and leave my children here with my husband? He said, you, you get back down to that cabin or I'll whip you again. And Madison told a Union soldier named James Fowler Rushling, he was a Union soldier and abolitionist who came to Kentucky and he had heard about Uncle Matt losing those children. And here's what he said to Matt, all documented fact. He says, Matt, it seems that when you slaves lose your children, it doesn't seem to bother you, they say. And Matt said to him, he said, oh no, Captain, don't you believe that? He says, slaves have feelings just the same as free people. And I'm a man and I can bear such things though it went mighty hard. Sometimes I'll go down those woods and I cry my eyes out. He said, men don't supposed to cry. It's a sign of weakness. But he says, sometimes I can't help myself. But let me tell you what it did to my wife when they sold that last girl. She was led away, hands tied behind a rider. My wife screamed and she went down to the woods. It seemed like she ain't never been the same since they sold that last girl. She seemed to lose her mind. She go down to the woods talking to herself. It's been four years now, and every day she looks down that dusty road thinking those children are going to come back. But he told, Madison told that Union soldier, No, sir, I don't think those children will ever be back to Mammoth Cave. So meantime, his brother Nick became very disheartened that he wanted to be free. He asked the owner, he says, sir, what would it take for me to get my freedom papers? But he didn't take Nick seriously. See, before Nick, Stephen Bishop passed away, that he was the first on the Echo River down in the very belly of the cave, he explained how he would go down into the river and dip his hat to get a cool drink of water, and these eyeless creatures would come up in his hat. So he found out that Stephen would get a nickel or a dime for these eyeless creatures. So he says, sir, what would it take for me to get my freedom papers. He said, Nick, you raised me 
I'll set you free. But he didn't take Nicholas serious. So Nick would tour guide during the day, and at night he would go down to the cave and catch those eyeless creatures. He was seven years raising $400 to buy his freedom papers. It seemed like old master was upset that Nick raised the money. He says, Nick, if you want to go, you go. But I highly predict you find out what it's like back there. So he goes back to Nashville where he had his first 17 years with his freedom papers. And he's soon to find out that just because you got freedom papers doesn't mean society cheats you any different than when you were in slavery. So he stays gone one year. This story was told to me by my father as I was a young lad and we were able to, to document the facts that Nick stayed gone just one year. He says, I'll go down to Nashville, Tennessee in the barn lots and the hay fields and I found out that people don't treat you no different. So he says, if I'm to be a slave, I want to come back to Mammoth Cave. And that he did after being gone for a year. Working in the cave, may have the record today for 51 years. They said, Nick, begin to get crippling old, goes to the cabin one day, never to come back to the cave. But one of the many folklore stories that they tell today, that if you go down to the river and sit quietly, you can still hear Nick dipping his hat in the cool river to get a drink of water. And you can hear Stephen Bishop singing those old Negro spirituals down there. They say you can see Matt standing by quietly. So the Civil War is over. And Matt's freed. A Union soldiers say, Matt, the Emancipation Proclamation has been written. You can go back to Nashville now. Matt say, oh no, Captain, I can never go back to Nashville now. Because if my children should come back after the Civil War and I'm in Nashville, they wouldn't know where to find me. So we stay on here. This became our home. Got into us as a family. 101 years before it was deemed America's 26th National Park in 1941. And in more recent years, we found out that Matt was able to find the two girls that were sold. But the boy named Thomas, it seems that we have no idea of what became of him. Some say he was sold into Nashville, Tennessee during the Civil War. I've been to Nashville and looked in the city directory, and I found one Bransford's name in the book but it seems that that branch, whatever who he was, wasn't interested in talking about slavery stuff. So the two girls were recovered, but the boy, we wondered what became of him. And like a lot of American people, when I'm at a bed busy in a national train station or airport, I wonder, have I seen someone today that I can never know that's kin to me? One of many American stories. So Henry was the only one of four children that wasn't sold from Matt and his wife, Parthena. He quickly teaches his son Henry the tricks of the trade. And then Henry marries a girl, and the Bransford started to come back to Mammoth Cave. And as a family, we continue guiding tours in the cave 101 years before it became your 26th National Park in 1941. Now, the transition period is on. What do, what do I mean by transition? Well, the citizens of Kentucky wanted this to become a 26th National Park. The United States government says, we don't have any money, but if the citizens of Kentucky could buy the land, we might consider this become the national park. The money was raised, in McDonald, Maine was declared, 507 families on 53,983 acres were all sold out. But my ancestors didn't really know what the true transition really meant. 
not only did it mean that all blacks and whites were going to lose their, their home and their land, but it also meant that the Brantsworth guides were going to lose their jobs. At that time, there were about nine black men on the old register. Seven of them were brothers of brothers' boys. And by 1941, they were quietly sent away because the administration told them that they had no job for the men of color. So that's how we left here in 1941 until a young co-ed named Joy Lyons found me through my father, looking through material in the Couture in the library, that she invited me to come back and bring the Brantsons back to Mammoth Cave after 78 years of absence. So I remain here today telling their stories. The story isn't about me, but the story is about people who were here for 101 years, who bared all the hardships of slavery, who escorted kings and queens, scientists and geologists, photographers to the cave, and then when it became a national park, it came time for real jobs and benefits. They were no longer qualified to do jobs that we had done for four generations. In some cases, training their successors to do their job. And that they did with great dignity. And so when those last three branches left, they said they never came back to Mammoth Cave again. They wanted to remember it as it is. So I'm honored to be here in their behalf, in their stead, celebrating exploring and guiding a cave for 101 years before this was deemed America's 26th National Park. So I speak in their behalf. That is such a remarkable story, and I'm a little blown away <laughs> by your ability to tell it so thoroughly. And I'm, I'm really curious to know and you know, truly understand how much does America need to hear this story and stories like it. Why I, is it important now? I think it's important for the foundation of America. More and more things are coming forth that people of color and other minorities have done that seems to have faded away with time. For me, it's super important because coming here every day kind of feels like coming home. When I go up to the homestead where my dad used to run around barefooted, it's, it's a special connection for me. Now, my dad's gone. And, and the last of my kin that was born here died two years ago, and she was 99 years of age. But she was sure proud that I returned the Brantswoods back to Mammoth Cave, more especially in a National Park uniform. So I want everybody to know that the story's never been about me, although some have declared me as famous and celebrity. That's not why I'm here. I want to tell America and the world what happened here for 101 years, that so much was taken from them, and they can't speak for themselves, but I promised myself and others that I would do the very best job that I can to speak to the world in their behalf. I think that you're doing a fantastic job of that. And I think one of the things that I'm curious to know is how do we preserve this story after you're gone? After there's no one... Well, there's material on the library, on the shelf in the libraries. There's materials in the Library of Congress. There's things out there that's been documented that was only talked about. I've made sure some of those things are in place, and I'm still fighting to, to put more things in place that will never go away, that once I'm gone, I'm, I'm officially in my mid-70s now, and I don't know of any successor behind me, but I, le I at least want to feel that I did the very best job that I could for the National Park Service and be a great representative for those folks, not just the Bransfords, but it's the Bob Livelys, it's the Much Hunter, it's the Will Garvin, Jonathan Doyle, Ed Hawkins. All these are black men and not necessarily kin to me, but I want to be their spokesperson and tell you why a lot of the passageways in the cave 
are named from them because they were among the first there in the 1800s. And personally, I think that it's really important that we also have people to tell these stories, not just documents, not just historic records. How is it that we can you know, begin a, a conversation about you know, how we can engage more people like yourself to take your, your part as park rangers, especially park rangers who are people of color? Well, the media has expressed great interest in the story. I've just been blown away with the things I've had opportunity to be exposed to for the last 17 years. It seems that people of color don't really come to national parks as we hope. I see several people here, but nothing like uh, the numbers that I would like to have come. So maybe stories like this will encourage them to come and see, because I've had people that I never knew until they came here on my tour. They said, oh, we saw you uh, in the publication or the uh, Kentucky Bureau of Tourism, and we're so glad to meet you because you told us some things that really influenced the, us to want to come here. So these are the kind of things I'm wanting to do. Well, I really hope that we can continue to see more people I do come too. out to tell the story. Yeah. So thank you very much for taking the time to chat with me. This has been an absolute honor. Well, thank you for having me, and I appreciate sharing my story with you. My mission isn't completed here, but I want to make sure that when my mission, when I have my last day, when I finally say my finally adios to this uniform, I want to make sure that I was a great representative for the Park Service, and I've said and done some things that my family would be proud of. Now, I've really worked hard on that. I've never worked for anybody harder than I've worked for the National Park Service. Jerry Bransford leads tours of Mammoth Cave through much of the late spring and summer seasons. As a master storyteller, he brings to life an incredible narrative of a proud legacy of environmental protection and the preservation of history that goes back more than 150 years. To learn more, visit online at nps.gov maca. For The Joy Chip Project, this is James Edward Mills. Thanks for joining us for the first episode of our 14th season of the Georgia Project. Our music comes courtesy of Artlist, this time featuring performer Falconer. This edition was made possible thanks to the partnership of the 2021 New York Times reporting project, Black History Continued. Additional support for the Georgia Project is provided by Saris Innovations, Outdoor Research, Patagonia, the University of Wisconsin-Madison Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies, and the National Geographic Society. You can follow along on this and other journeys through history at joychirproject.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop me a note in the comments, or better still, write a review on one of our many streaming platforms, including iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. I'd love to hear from you. You can also reach me via email with your constructive questions, comments, and criticisms at info at joychirproject.com. Thanks for listening. But for now, go be joyful. And until next time, take care.